0: understanding work, look at the construction integration model of comprehension. So last week I discussed John Anderson's ambitious ACT-R theory of cognitive skill acquisition. ACT-R is a theory that tackles a big question, how do we learn things? And Anderson's theory makes a compelling set of predictions and has quite a bit of evidence to back it up. Yet understanding the mind is a bit like the story of the blind men and the elephant. One touches the tusk and says that elephants are hard and smooth. Another touches the leg and says they're rough and thick. A third touches the tail and says they're thin and hairy. Which theory you arrive at depends on what you choose to grasp. ACT-R was developed using a paradigm of problem-solving, particularly in well-defined domains like algebra and programming. This relatively simple paradigm is then assumed to represent all of the broader, messier kinds of intellectual skills that people apply to real-life situations. But what if we took a different paradigm as our starting point? In this essay, I'll take a deeper look at Walter Kinch's Construction Integration Theory. This theory uses the process of understanding text as its starting point for a broader view of cognition. And as I'll show, it both complements and contrasts the ACT-R model that we discussed previously. How do we understand what we read? So what is going on in your head so that you can understand words that are written down on a piece of paper? At a basic level, we understand that the brain has to convert these squiggles of white and black into letters and words. But what happens next? How do we actually make sense of it? Now, we're pretty good at getting machines to recognize text from a photo, but we're a lot worse at getting these machines to understand what they read in ways that closely resemble human beings. Part of the reason this is so hard is that language is ambiguous. Take the phrase, time flies like an arrow. What does it mean? Well, for most of us, the expression is a metaphor. It evokes the idea of time passing forward in a straight line. Except taken literally, there are several possible situations this could refer to. The joke in linguistics is, time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. Well, how then do we know that when we're reading this sentence, there isn't a species of fly called the time fly, and they happen to be particularly fond of a kind of projectile? So the vague but correct answer is that we use our world knowledge to constrain which interpretation is the most reasonable we merge the literal words of the text with what we already know to effortlessly form a picture of what the sentence means. Walter Kinch's construction integration theory is a hypothesis about how we do this. Fundamental concept, propositions. The basic building blocks of Kinch's theory are propositions. A proposition is basically a way of rewriting an English sentence so that it makes a clear, single, literal meaning. Propositions are useful because English sentences can be ambiguous or they may be arbitrarily complicated and thus contain many propositions. So, take a very simple phrase like, they are flying planes. Well, this could actually be interpreted as two different propositional structures. The first would roughly translate to the idea that there are some people, they, who are piloting flying planes. The second would be a statement that there are some things, they, which happen to be planes for flying. Think of a proposition as a fundamental building block of meaning. We can even form complex meanings by connecting together a network from these atomic propositions. Now, propositions are a useful tool, but do they have any psychological reality? Kinch argues that they do. For one, propositions tend to be recalled entirely or not at all. We don't usually recall half a proposition, when we are remembering something from what we've read. Second, people tend to recall things based on their proximity in the propositional structure rather than in the actual text. So, for instance, if I give you the sentence, the mausoleum that enshrined the Tsar overlooked the square, subjects who are given the cue overlooked are more able to recall square than Tsar. And this happens even though czar and overlooked are actually closer together in the actual text. Finally, recall of a text depends on the number of propositions, not the number of words. This is another clue that we use something like propositions to think at the level of meaning. Now, is all knowledge propositional? Well, probably not. We have mental imagery, bodily sensations, and far more than we can express in words. There's even been experiments on mental rotation showing conclusively that the idea of a mind's eye is not just a convenient metaphor. What things look like when we imagine them does impact our reasoning. However, Kinch argues persuasively that we can treat knowledge as propositional, even just as a theoretical fiction. The benefit of this approximation is that it allows us to represent diverse types of knowledge in the same way, just to make it a bit easier to work with in coming up with a theory. Step one, convert text into propositions. So the first step in construction integration is to create a more or less literal representation of the text. This involves transforming patterns of dark and light, hitting our eyeballs into letters and words. We then need to convert those words into propositions that represent what the text is saying. Now, these first two steps are very important, but Kinch's model omits the details of visual transformation and parsing. However, we manage to do it, the theory assumes that we are able to read text and develop a few propositions in our working memory derived from it. Now, at this stage, we are not yet using context to disambiguate meanings. So, the phrase that I mentioned earlier, they're flying planes, would activate both the they're flying planes in terms of the they being pilots and the they're flying planes in terms of the they being planes. And both of those meanings would be activated, but the degree of activation may depend on which seems more likely. So I can say when I read that sentence, definitely the idea that they are flying planes, the they refers to pilots and not planes, just because that seems more plausible to me. Now, this is the construction phase of the construction integration model. Text is converted into the propositions it literally implies. And if the sentence is a little ambiguous, this may introduce multiple contradictory meanings that have to get resolved as you read more. Step two, build the propositions into a text base. So these atomic literal propositions now have to be linked together. This network of propositions is called the text base. So in one example, Kinch provides the text for the phrase, the snow was deep on the mountain, the skiers were lost, so they dug a snow cave, which provided them shelter. And that creates a text base that has all of these different propositions linked to each other. So the snow was deep on the mountain, and the skiers were lost, which also links to mountain, and they dug a snow cave, which is also on the mountain, and it provided them shelter. So what was provided shelter was the snow cave for the skiers. So basically, you can think of all these little elements getting linked up into a network structure. Step three, link the text base to prior knowledge. So a proposition on its own doesn't mean very much. The sentence, the snow is deep and the glarb is snarf are both interpretable as propositions. So snow is deep, glarb is snarf. But the difference is that snarf and glarb don't activate anything in prior knowledge, so they're essentially meaningless. It's the link that prior understanding has that gives words their meaning. This understanding is itself also assumed to be a network of propositions, but instead of just the momentary network created by reading the literal text, this deeper understanding is thought to be a vast, dormant network of connections in long-term memory. So as we read, we activate prior knowledge. The likelihood of retrieving this prior knowledge depends on the retrieval strength for the concept given the keyword. Now, this may be near 100% for familiar words, but obviously it will be lower if the word is new or unfamiliar. Thus, creating a text base is not just creating a new network. We then overlay this network on top of this mostly dormant network created from past experience. Step four, stabilize the network of propositions. So finally, this network of propositions will have to stabilize. This is the integration phase of construction integration theory. Now, this happens because some of the possible meanings will not match with other information in the text, and also because our prior world knowledge constrains which meanings are activated in the network. So we can see how this might happen with the ambiguous phrase, they are flying planes. So initially, both senses are active, although one may be a little bit more active than the other just based on its Overall likeliness. Second, another sentence might follow. Let's say they recently graduated from flight school. Now, this information activates other nodes which are connected through prior knowledge. So we know planes can't graduate from flight school, which suppresses the second meaning of this ambiguous sentence. In contrast, you might have had the unexpected sentence they are really noisy when they pass by overhead now the idea of pilots being noisy seems less likely, and the alternative meaning that the objects they referred to were flying planes becomes more likely. Stabilization happens because the nodes simultaneously activate or weaken their connected neighbors. The channels through which this activation or suppression flows are a combination of the text space given by the environment and our prior world knowledge. So if the text makes the meaning explicit, a good reader will rely on that text space over their prior world knowledge. However, if the text omits some inferential steps, we will fill in the gaps with what we already know. Putting the steps together. Okay, so let's recap the basics of how construction integration says that we make sense of what we read. First, we convert English sentences into propositions. These are the atomic unambiguous meanings of the text. Second, as we read, we link the propositions together to form a text space. This network of propositions creates the literal interpretation of the text. Three, the nodes of the text space activate corresponding nodes in our prior world knowledge. Thus, we have two networks, a momentarily activated one consisting of the text's literal meaning, overlaid on top of a vast, mostly dormant network, of prior knowledge. Fourth, nodes activate related meanings and suppress contradictory ones. The text base drives this activation, but it flows through our existing world knowledge. This allows us to make obvious inferences that aren't literally in the text, but it's also how we suppress inappropriate meanings given the context. Finally, this Continuous jostling of activation and suppression will eventually stabilize into a coherent structure. That structure is what we take to be the meaning of the text. Now although I've presented this as a series of steps, these processes are likely acting in parallel. Each word you read simultaneously updates the text base, activates the prior knowledge, and stabilizes the structure. So it's a lot of things all going on at once, but I've tried to separate them out so that you can hopefully make a little bit more sense of them. Getting the gist. We often remember the gist of what we read, even as the literal contents rapidly fade from memory. So consider the following text I'll read to you right now. Jane drove to alfalfas, picked up some fresh fruit, a halibut steak, some Italian cheese for dessert, and paid with her credit card. Now, although it's nowhere in the text, the proposition, Jane bought groceries, would be highly active for this sentence. Because of our world knowledge, when we read a series of propositions that we associate with grocery shopping, the central theme of the sentence becomes more and more active as each of the parts contribute to it. Now this overall meaning may be retrievable from our long-term memory more so than any of the details because of this centralizing flow of activation. This pattern also helps explain why we generally seem to recall meaningful patterns better than arbitrary details, and why prior knowledge is crucial for learning. Implications of the Construction-Integration Model for Cognition The idea of a vast network of simultaneously firing nodes that suppress and activate each other may seem difficult to imagine, let alone draw any conclusions from, but I'll do my best to share what I think the construction integration model implies. One, meaning is shallow. One implication of the CI model for comprehension is that meaning is relatively superficial. When you read a word, its meaning is defined by the network of related activations. What words mean in a situation will often be quite limited compared to all of their potential meanings. So research on transfer-appropriate processing bears this out. Researchers gave participants stories about a piano where the context was either moving furniture or playing music. The result was that whether heavy or loud was a better retrieval cue depended on which story they heard. This was related to Nick Chater's argument in The Mind is Flat. Our conscious awareness is a few spots of light on a broader tapestry. Our moment-to-moment experience is surprisingly impoverished, but we have an illusion of depth because we can access our existing knowledge as soon as we want to think about it. The meaning of a word, sentence, or even an entire book isn't inherent to the text. It's a collaboration between the literal words and an active reader. 2. Working memory isn't limited for familiar tasks. In addition to his CI model, Kinch worked with Anders Ericsson to explain how experts are seemingly not hampered by working memory limitations. They propose that experts develop long-term working memory. So, to briefly recap, working memory is what you can keep in mind simultaneously. It's famously limited, perhaps to as little as four chunks of information. Yet experts seem to be free of this limitation in performing tasks. This is particularly relevant to a theory of text comprehension, because, for familiar texts, we are all experts. So in one experiment, subjects read a passage about the invention of the steam engine presented one sentence at a time. Except, in between each sentence, they were presented distractor sentences that weren't about the story. Now, the result was that the comprehension involved in reading was barely affected. Now, this might not seem too surprising. After all, we regularly read stories while having our attention flip back and forth between things in the environment. However, if you tried the same thing with... Memorizing phone numbers or nonsense syllables, the distraction would almost completely erase whatever you were previously paying attention to. Erickson and Kinch's answer is that we overcome working memory limitations by creating retrieval structures. This means that through practice, we can remove constraints on our working memory, effectively becoming smarter. However, there's a big catch. These retrieval structures only help for material we've practiced. Thus, you can get smarter, but don't expect it to transfer to unfamiliar tasks. 3. Problem-solving or problem-understanding Last week, I suggested that ACT-R and CI offer differing accounts for how we think. So, how do they compare? Well, in many ways, the two theories fit quite nicely together. ACT-R is simply more elaborately focused on the procedural memory system, and CI offers a more detailed account of declarative memory. But there are some contrasts. ACT-R sees thinking as primarily problem solving, but CI thinks thinking as primarily comprehension. So ACT-R bases the learning of skills on acquiring and strengthening those if-then production rules. CI bases learning on a process of spreading activation that allows us to understand a situation effortlessly. These different frameworks suggest somewhat different pictures of transfer. ACT-R is more pessimistic skill transfers to the extent that it shares productions, and most of these productions are going to be highly specific. In contrast, CI argues that world knowledge forms a background for interpreting tasks. Every little bit of knowledge adds to that background, even if none of it ends up being decisive for a particular task. Now, despite these contrasts, I shouldn't exaggerate the differences. Both models paint a picture in which learning is domain-specific and extensive experience is required for expertise. Both models are firmly within cognitive science, assume a limited working memory capacity, and an information processing model for thinking. Both may end up being true, but just emphasizing different parts of the mind. Like the blind men and the elephant, we shouldn't be misled to think either paints a complete or totalizing picture. Final thoughts on construction integration. So, I've barely scratched the surface of the implications from Kinch's construction integration theory, In later chapters, he explores the idea of how we might use this to solve word problems in mathematics, the source of cognitive biases that lead to irrational decisions, and even how such a model might support a sense of self. So if this brief summary interested you, I highly recommend checking out Walter Kinch's book, Comprehension, A Paradigm for Understanding. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.